What time is it, Matt? It's policy time. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me today, we have Sarah Cliff, as usual, and also the great Herman Lopez uh, sitting in for Ezra Klein. Uh, got a great show coming. We're going to talk about uh, Americans dying and talk about policy time. It's very on brand for The Weeds. Uh, but but we, we We're going to have some policy time. We This, I mean, this, this is, is policy this is time. Our policy time. Um, All the time is policy time. Yes, but uh, well, we asked Herman to join us because there was um, some significant uh, news this week on marijuana policy, uh, which is a specialty of his um, and something that we wanted to talk about. Uh, it seemed like a, a somewhat surprising move, at least it, it came as a surprise to me. Uh, and can you just explain, like, broadly, like, what happened? Yeah, it is a little surprising because uh, essentially what the attorney general did, and he could have done this a year ago, but he chose to do it at the start of this year, uh, is he rescinded. Obama-era guidances that essentially allowed states to continue with legalizing marijuana without federal interference. So marijuana is still technically illegal under federal law, but what these guidances from the Obama administration did is they allowed states to essentially carry out their legalization initiatives um, unless they didn't meet eight certain criteria. They were things like you can't let legal marijuana land on kids' hands or be trafficked across state lines. And as long as states met those criteria, the federal government w- was supposed to just keep its hands off. So, so so like what they had been doing under the Obama's second term was sort of quarantining legal marijuana in the states that were legalizing it, right? They were trying to make sure you weren't becoming like a base of operations for interstate marijuana distribution. That's right. Like the main policy. And goal. were there any violations or was it kind of just like – like Colorado and Washington were able to abide by these and like everything was pretty chill. Yeah, as long as um, th- this is actually one criticism of the Obama era guidances is that uh, there was never any harsh enforcement, right? You could interpret these guidances to be really strict. So conceivably, some marijuana is always going to end up across state lines, no matter how good states are at regulating their systems. Um, but the Obama administration, at least the DEA and, and whatnot, didn't really go after anyone in a huge way. So what Sessions changed is now he's telling prosecutors, you know what, you can make your own judgment. Uh, you can look at federal law, which prohibits marijuana, and you can look at what's going on in your jurisdiction, and you can decide if you want to prosecute these businesses that are legal under state law, but not under federal law. And this was a switch, right? When when George W. Bush was president, we didn't have the commercial legalization in Washington and Colorado, but we did have medical marijuana dispensaries, particularly in California, and they were very much federal law enforcement targets. Right. As particularly in California, there were high profile raids during the Bush administration and during the early years of the Obama administration. And until the, these memos and these guidances came around, the Obama administration pretty much continued that. But after Colorado and Washington State became the first two to legalize in 2012, the Obama administration started changing tracks on its and its policy. It had also uh, done an earlier memo in terms of just medical marijuana that also tried to push back against the DEA 
uh, raiding medical marijuana dispensaries. And so uh, with all of that, the the raids kind of stopped. And we've been to this point where now states are just kind of moving forward with legalization. There are now eight states, uh, might be nine states by the end of the week, because Vermont is considering legalizing marijuana, although not for sales. And it seems like, like for the most part, the federal government has just stayed out of it. And now it's unclear exactly where this will go. Federal prosecutors have released statements essentially saying, well, uh, some of them have suggested that they will be more strict on legal marijuana. The uh, federal prosecutor in Massachusetts did. Massachusetts has legalized pot. Um, others have said, like in Colorado, that they're not really going to change what they were doing. But this is exactly what we would expect from what Sessions did. He, he essentially told federal prosecutors they can do what they want. So it's now going to be up to individual prosecutors to decide exactly how strict they are on enforcing federal law here. So the thing I wanted to have you talk about is like what we've learned from Colorado and Washington and this experiment that's been running for, what is it, like five, less than that? I don't know how many years, five or so? Well, the sale started in 2014 in Colorado and Washington. So less than that. Yeah, so it's even less than that. It's like a three, four-year experiment. I was curious, like when you think about like all this research you read on Colorado and Washington, like what do you feel like we know changes when a state legalizes marijuana. I think the two things that come to mind are like the public health effects and also the economics of legalizing marijuana. And I'm curious, like, what's most interesting to you? Like, what stands out to you about what's true in these places that we've learned in a few years? Right. So I guess I should caveat this by saying, well, it's still pretty early. If you talk to experts about this, I'll always caution it's early. We should wait a few more years. But there has been some early research so far and some surveys done. And what we found is that it's not really the end of the world that a lot of people feared. Um, in Colorado, teen marijuana use is actually down, which is contrary to what people who supported prohibition would have expected a few years ago. Uh, in Washington state, the numbers are either going up slightly or they're about the same as they were during legalization for teen marijuana use. Um, there Why is, would teen marijuana use go down? The question is whether legalization okay. matters enough to teens that they're using more pot or if they were going to use pot less or more pot anyway. Well, I mean, isn't isn't also part of the theory that if selling drugs to anyone is illegal, then you may as well sell drugs to a 17-year-old. But if you can make a living selling drugs to 19-year-olds, but it's illegal to sell to a 17-year-old, then you like, may as well sell like you, to the people like, who are like you might actually follow the law. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I've just always been skeptical of that uh-huh. because I think once you legalize something, it's just going to become more accessible and adults will start giving it to, I mean, selling it to their, I don't know, teenage brothers or sisters or something. I always found as a teen it was easier to buy marijuana than beer. Yeah, that's true. That was my experience. Of it. That was also my experience as a teen. But I was too good to buy either. Uh. <laughs> I have no experience. Okay. Okay, so Teen use is like maybe down, maybe slightly up, but like not that yeah, it's, dramatic. It's, it's, it's not dramatic. Otherwise, we've seen uh, car crashes are maybe sl- involving drug use are maybe slightly up. Uh, it depends on which study you're looking at. Um, I should mention the the other side of this is obviously marijuana arrests are way down. And since there are huge racial disparities in those that's a good thing for for addressing racial disparities in the criminal justice system. The remaining arrests actually still have pretty big racial disparities, but in general, there are way fewer arrests, so that's 
generally the outcome you would expect and, and legalization advocates desire. The legalization's mostly been in, in states with low African-American populations, though, right? Yeah, that's true. But even then, even in those states, there were pretty pronounced right. racial disparities. So it's still good to see uh, those kinds of arrests come down. But I think the, the most telling evidence is actually medical marijuana here. Uh, even though medical marijuana, I mean, it's called medical marijuana, there were definitely a lot of states that were not very strict about enforcing the what? medical side of that. Um, <laughs> That's shocking. Yeah. California <laughs> in particular is as, is notoriously bad at this. And they're, now they're trying to change it. Now that they've fully legalized, they're trying to enforce more regulations. But uh, up to the last few years, they're, we're definitely not good at this. And the evidence does suggest that when you do open up access through medical marijuana, you would expect more use and more dependence to go up. Um, There have been a few good studies on this. They show that specifically in places that allow dispensaries, that allow commercialization, essentially, you do see an uptick in use and dependence among adults, although not as much in teens. So that kind of speaks to what we've seen so far here. And the, the concern with that is, I mean, marijuana, more people using marijuana is not the end of the world. It's not a particularly dangerous drug. But there are some public health concerns with it in terms of, I mean, I mentioned car crashes, which is a public safety issue. But there's also things like, like if people are, more people are using marijuana, then, I mean, w- one researcher I talked to always says that we know that people who are probably smoking a lot of marijuana are not increasing their chances of winning a Pulitzer or something like that. And there's also concerns with, um, there, there are some studies indicating that it can produce problems like increased mental health issues, particularly psychosis, that even though it ha- also has medical benefits, there are also physical health concerns to consider in terms of smoking and, and that kind of thing. But the so that's that's why people are concerned. It's not that it that marijuana is uh, this super dangerous drug, not in the same way alcohol or tobacco are, are but it is something to consider and at least uh a downside to legalization if access goes up. And I mean, what do we expect to see happen under this sort of new regime? I mean, is there a likelihood that there's going to be a a substantial shift in the availability of marijuana if U.S. attorneys uh, say they want to, you know, come forward with with a new tough on pot initiative? Or is this probably sort of nothing. I mean, should should you be I don't know. I'd like like should we worry about our marijuana supply? Well, should should people who you know be concerned, right? I mean, yeah. if you live in Massachusetts, like is this is this going to be the end or well, reporters have tried asking the Justice Department, will this lead to more anti-marijuana prosecutions? And they have said, uh, maybe, we don't know. It's it's really weird how they don't even know seem to know the answers to these questions. And really, it's going to come down to what federal prosecutors are doing, uh, individual federal prosecutors. If they do want to crack down, if some of them do choose to crack down, that could definitely have a chilling effect. If you're a marijuana business, if it's kind of a tough process and expensive process to go through this licensing regime. And you see that other businesses are getting shut down seemingly at the whims of a federal prosecutor. That is probably going to make you think twice about this. Um, And uh, one example is marijuana index uh, stocks actually fell, which is an interesting thing that we have nowadays. But (laughs) they actually fell in the aftermath of this decision. And that has raised concerns about whether investors are going to be a little shakier about putting money into marijuana businesses and and so on and so forth. So. in, in terms of the sort of pushing this down to the U.S. attorneys, is like is that how this really works? I mean, there's a there's a DEA field office 
in Boston. There's a that's like an agency of people who are pretty committed to, you know, war on drugs type rhetoric. In the absence of this kind of memo, if they, you know, decide to drive down the street, you know, look up some marijuana shops in the yellow pages, uh, come in with their badges and say, like, hey, this stuff's illegal. Like, can the U.S. attorney really like what are you gonna what are you gonna do? It, it, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm trying to ask like what's the what's the chain of command here, right? Like when you have a presidential directive saying like no, leave these businesses alone, you know, then they get left alone. When you're kind of saying like I don't know what shruggy, like we have no we have no national policy on this question. Everybody just go go do what you want, right? That's that's one of the most. I mean, yeah, it. it it could be that a federal prosecutor in Massachusetts decides I'm going to run across the street and just lock up everyone in these dispensaries. And in California, somebody could just be like, ah, I don't know. I don't care about those businesses. It's it's a really weird way. And particularly with the framing that the Justice Department and Sessions use, they said that this is about bringing the rule of law back to the U.S. But if you are really mean that, then you mean the rule of law as in it's going to be enforced 100% of the time. And this is actually kind of doing the opposite well, of right. that. And just, it's just totally confusing. But I think it, it speaks to like how I feel like I've seen the Trump administration acting in a lot of areas that this is something Dara, our Friday host, and I have talked about a lot. But they're essentially using uncertainty as like a tool where, you know, to accomplish, I, I, I Yes, they don't. I, I don't. You probably understand the politics of this better than I do. For some reason, they don't want to go as far as, you know, saying, OK, now you do this again. And like having a directive like the Obama administration did, they're kind of putting in this limbo. And I feel like you see very similar actions with immigration and, you know, meant to depress immigration without actually um, committing massive resources to it. I see a bunch of this in like healthcare right now where it's like unclear if nine million kids will keep getting health insurance um, through Chip, it seems like a pattern to me of how the Trump administration, you know, uses uncertainty as a policy tool, um, and and that that matters. I mean, that changes how people behave when you're not really sure what the rules are, you know, around your life and your business. But what's odd about it is that there's sort of uncertainty inside uncertainty, right? Like the pre-memo approach was that the DEA was not, like, writ large, super focused on marijuana, which was illegal in most places and a local law enforcement thing. But in places where they were allowing dispensaries to operate with very lax rules, they were deliberately targeting them because they were – like, I mean, marijuana is illegal under federal law. I think a non-crazy interpretation of their mission was that they needed to – enforce those rules, try to prevent marijuana from becoming legal, and, like, target openly operating dispensaries, then the Obama administration pulled them back from that, trying to say, like, no, we're going to defer to state officials. But the Trump policy of saying, we're going to defer to federal officials, but the local ones, is, like, it's very... Strange. I mean, it's just it's difficult to say what that's supposed to accomplish, right? To say that federal law, federal law, instead of being enforced spottily according to what the local elected officials want, to say federal law is going to be enforced spottily according to what their own federal appointees want is is weird. Yeah, I think the best way to understand this 
at least the way I've tried to think about it, is that Sessions, in his world, if he got his way, he would absolutely crack down on every single legal marijuana establishment in the U.S. I mean, he has long said, he made comments like, good people don't smoke marijuana. He said that he would want the federal law enforcement to really crack down on these places. But I think that what he has run into is two forces. One is that the Justice Department probably does not have the resources to crack down on all of the marijuana businesses that are now out there. So at least unless they would want to like hurt their mission in terms of reducing violent crime or anything else that Sessions wants to do. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that marijuana legalization is just extremely popular. Uh, It pulls really well in the U.S. and it pulls particularly well in the states that have actually voted it in. And also the, the complicating issue is that some of these states like Colorado and Nevada, they have Republican senators. So if, say, the Justice Department went into these states and started really cracking down on marijuana legalization, that could piss people off. And they might be like, hey, I don't like this Republican government that's doing this right now. Maybe I shouldn't vote for the Republican senator. Uh, and then they might risk losing the Senate or something like that. I mean, there are these basically the point is that there are these political concerns that they have to think about now, because as much as sentence would love to crack down on marijuana, it's just not a very popular idea. Okay, so you talk through like some of the things we've learned from these states. I'm curious, like, what do you hear when you talk to folks who don't support marijuana legalization? You talk to folks at justice or look at the statements they put out. What is the rationale like they off? Is it just about, you know, this is the law and like our hands are tied or like, what's the case? And is there like a compelling case that you hear against legalization? Like, what's the best argument against it? And what do we hear from the Trump administration? I think the best argument is essentially making the case, not even necessarily against legalization, but against commercialization, which is that uh, we have done a really terrible job regulating companies that sell legal drugs over the years. I mean, we have tobacco still kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. Alcohol is 88,000 deaths a year, opioid epidemic uh, caused initially by pharmaceutical companies. I mean, so the the concern is if we have a similar for-profit interest come in and really market their drugs irresponsibly with marijuana, that could cause problems. Um, The caveat to that is that we do know that marijuana isn't as dangerous as all these other drugs I just mentioned. So who knows exactly how risky that would be. But that's generally the best argument is that they're really worried about big marijuana coming in and just really marketing the drug irresponsibly. And to the extent that the Sessions memo creates uncertainty and might create a chilling effect, I think some of the hope is that it'll uh, slow down investment into the marijuana industry and in that way might slow down some of these big marijuana businesses from taking off. Um, the question is how how effective that would actually be in the long run because the next administration can come in and just overturn this memo and it doesn't look like legalization is going away just because of this memoir anytime soon. But that that's generally what they're they're Is that what is. we see playing out? Like is marijuana and like the states where it's legal dominated by a handful of like big like like it's big marijuana or is it like mom and pop marijuana at this point or it's still I mean it, this is one place where it's definitely still early. We have seen these bigger 
companies form in the past few years that are interested in really making this national, not just statewide market and really starting to push like this is the standard you want for pot and advertising. Hey, we have the the best ideas for farming, cultivating and selling marijuana. So you're beginning to see some of that start to happen, but it's something that you would expect over time anyway. Just I mean, we've seen this with other industries that the bigger players start coming in. Um, but it, it's right now it's too early to say. And even under the the Obama memo regime, there were still pretty meaningful federal legal restrictions on marijuana businesses related to their access to the banking system and some other aspects of, of finance. So the most sort of advanced commercialization had been in sort of secondary businesses right. related to the marijuana trade. But you haven't – it hasn't been possible to create like a – marijuana uh like retail store franchise in right. a way that you know there is for hamburgers um but you know further steps toward legalization could you, you would just expect it to become like a more and more normal kind of business right to that to that point i mean one of the uh criteria in that in the obama memo is that you cannot do interstate trafficking, right? So, I mean, you would not be allowed to grow your marijuana in Colorado and ship it to California. So that alone limits just how big these businesses can get. And also the banking stuff. There's also, they can't deduct certain taxes because of uh, federal prohibition. And that uh, that all limits how, how big these companies can get. They have found ways around it. So there are like credit unions that are starting up to try to let these marijuana businesses do some banking. But that does limit just how far they can Wait, go. Wait, I mean, if you think about any other agricultural commodity, right, the the interstate trafficking in, like, corn products is integral to the whole operation of the, the food system, right? I mean, it's it's not typically the case that you grow everything in the same state as the people who would consume it. Right, and and the thing is you definitely don't need to. It's not like right. there right. there you could conceivably it's, it's, it's a dried herbal product. <laughs> right. It's easily transportable. But and also, I mean, I'm curious if you run into this in your reporting Vermont, but a few years ago I was at a healthcare conference in Colorado and one of the field trips was like visit a marijuana farm, which I signed up for. And the amount of regulation, at least at the time, this was probably two years ago, every plant is tagged and like the state knows about every single plant. The guy who was running it was this Dutch guy who used to do like hydroponic tomatoes and was telling us a lot about like all the, um, you know, it, it seemed like a very formal greenhouse um, environment, but a very highly regulated greenhouse. Like they don't have to tag every single tomato plant in his old like tomato factory. But there it was like every single one of them had this little state tag on them. And it seems like that's still probably a a higher cost of entry to the marijuana industry is that you're going to be dealing with a lot more bureaucracy and regulation of your product. Right. This was this was called the seed to sale model, where you would essentially track from the seed to the sale the, the marijuana, make sure it stays within the state and and whatnot. And generally, that that has still been true in the states that have legalized. Uh, my guess is there are going to be regulations that kind of ease up on that as more states expand and maybe as the federal government begins changing how it handles marijuana. Because now there has been this pushback and there has been has been these legislative proposals to stop the federal government from interfering in any way with states that have legalized marijuana for recreational purposes. There, Congress actually passed a budget writer that already does this for medical marijuana, but uh, now, like Nancy Pelosi is out there saying, well, we should do this for full legalization because. Is there much states can do? Like, like if you like are in Massachusetts, and you have this guy who's getting aggressive 
Can you do much to protect your industry? It doesn't seem like an obvious solution comes up to me, but I'm curious if they're like thinking through workarounds at this point. Not really. If the federal government wants to take you to court, you just kind of have to go to court. So, all right, uh, we've got limited time today, so I think we should we should go. I to think break it's and, um, uh, what time is it, Matt? We should. Well, we'll take a break, and when we come back, it's policy time. <laughs> Are you ready to start your new business? You want to make it stand out and you can get started with Squarespace. Squarespace is a easy to use website builder that has beautiful templates by world-class designers and it has a pretty powerful e-commerce function that lets you sell anything online. You're able to customize the look and feel with just a few clicks. You do not have to be an experienced web designer. They have customers that range from gyms to food producers to wedding professionals to furniture makers. I actually use Squarespace for my own professional website. I am not a web designer by any means. I am a journalist, but I have found it incredibly easy to design a really nice looking, really useful website. Right now, you can go to squarespace.com for a free trial when you're ready to launch and use the offer code WEEDS to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That is squarespace.com, offer codes WEEDS. I really like using Squarespace and I think you will too. This is just a, a small thing in, in the news, but I, I thought a very interesting uh, Axios story that Jonathan Swan did where he was leaked some copies of President Trump's actual schedule as opposed to the public schedule that, that's sort of posted on the internet. And he found that, you know, they've got hours a day, every day blocked out for the president to watch television and they call it executive time, which which I think is funny. I, I told my wife I, I need some executive time last night before I finished the dishes. Um, and But then there's also, there's policy time. And the difference is unclear. So, you know, one of the uh, one of the days of the schedule that Jonathan Swan got a hold of it was a Thursday from a few weeks ago where policy time was at 11, executive time was at noon, lunch for an hour, and then executive time at 1:30. So, we do not have reporting right now on the difference between policy and executive time, but they are they're both seem to be frequent appearances on the Trump calendar, along with lunch, which is separate. Um lunchtime lunchtime. I mean, it's important to eat lunch, I guess. I I can't get over how dumb this all is. I mean, honestly, it is just so incredibly stupid. I I mean, here we have the person in the most powerful role in the world, and he wants to show up to work late because he wants to watch television. Most Americans, I'm sure, would love to show up to work late to watch television, but I think all of us understand that's not okay. Yet, the president... It's also... The the other thing about this is that it's not like he needs... TV news to catch up on the world's events. <laughs> right. He has access to the best right. intelligence reports. Like after in executive the world. time is the security briefing, which is probably it, like exactly. better than the it, TV so reporting. It just shows that this is all. It, it seems like it's all for vanity. Trump wants to see what people are saying on on TV about him, and then he wants to know how to spin what he sees on TV on his Twitter account. It's just, it's just so, so ridiculous. But. I, I think there's something important here, which is that something that I think baffles a lot of liberals is like, how is it that Republicans don't see, don't look at this shit show and say, like, we need to bail on this disaster? And the answer is that some of this stuff that looks to a Trump skeptic like a shit show, like he's watching five hours of television a day, is what 
Republican establishment types actually find to be okay about the Trump administration, that he has appointed to lead agencies a lot of Republican Party people. They are doing things. They are, you know, they're doing their deregulatory things. They're they're doing basically normal right-wing things. The members of Congress on Capitol Hill are doing basically normal right-wing things. And the president, who does not have deep connections to the Republican Party, is not disturbing their work, right? He's he's watching TV, he's doing some tweets, but but this to them is okay. What what worried them about Trump, right? When a total outsider to conserve the conservative movement swept in, started winning primaries, started dominating the polls, they worried that he was going to shake things up, right? That we were going to get the single-payer healthcare system that he floated. Or he he said at one point that he thought the federal government should leave marijuana alone, right? He He said lots of stuff. And you could imagine a world in which Trump is hard at work, you know, working the phones, talking to his contacts in the business community, talking to Democrats, and he's governing in this very idiosyncratic way, and it's like a big confusion. But he's not doing that stuff. He's taking these routine security (laughs) briefings. He's letting his staff run the government. Like, I think it's appalling, but like, it's this is like why I think this is what Mitch McConnell finds reassuring. It's like his bet that Trump would let congressional Republicans run the country is paying off. Sort of. But and maybe this is true and I'm not getting into the mindset enough, but it seems like executive time has its own damaging consequences of we see this pattern again and again of what appears to be watching something on Fox News and then sending out like some absurd tweet that is related to it. We saw the tweets about North Korea and the nuclear button. We saw this like weird tweets about intelligence over the weekend. I I don't think it makes sense to think of executive time as like passive, like derping around, like not consequential. Like executive time actually leads to Twitter time and like Twitter time that that can <laughs> that, that that like that is affecting American foreign policy. And that is like actually part of what is happening in the United States. It's not just playtime that is inconsequential. It actually is shape and shapes, you know, how. Trump thinks and is approaching things. I do get he has cabinet secretaries, but at the end of the day, like he is the president and and he 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 matters in this whole system of American government. On the other hand, to Matt's point, if you want to take a really cynical view, all of these things, like all these controversies, all of this <laughs> the stupid tweets and whatnot, they do let Republicans do some things without getting as much attention. So one thing is a tax plan. I think a lot of us were kind of perplexed last year as to why this wasn't getting more attention as Republicans were working it through. And maybe the Trump scandals, the Trump shit show just was sucking up all the attention. And it also speaks to Matt's point in that really this was a tax plan that in many ways defied what Trump promised on the campaign trail. And yet Congress was basically able to do what what it wanted to. Republicans in Congress were able to do what they wanted. So I, I don't know. I, I think if you take a really cynical view, these distracting tweets actually do let Republicans in Congress do what, what they want. I mean, I'm not saying it's good. I'm, I'm just <laughs> saying that I think if you want to understand what keeps the machine rolling forward, right, it's that Republicans don't it's not that Republicans don't want an engaged president. Like, if Mike Pence were president, I bet they would want him to be working hard. But because the president is Donald Trump, they like it that he's 
disengaged and doing, you know, going to the football game and tweeting about how he he stands for the national anthem and, you know, watching Fox and redoing CNN memes. Like, their fear is that his instincts, which we see frequently, just like his policy instincts are a little all over the map. And like, they don't want him to like buckle down and, and work on things. I don't know. I mean, it all seems pretty pretty terrible and it's just an odd thing to get elected to president and like this is how you use so many things you could do and like this is how you're going to use your time I, I mean I guess this is his decision but it seems there's so much more you could be yes, like I, I agree can, with that like like I guess I can't watch TV all morning because like I'd probably get fired from Vox but I have like a lot of free time in my schedule to watch TV because I'm not in charge of the United States and it just it's a very odd situation that we're in that, like, you get elected into this office and this makes up a good chunk of your time. Well, what I think is weird is that he chooses to spend his executive time watching cable news. I mean, I you know, I, I've been uh, watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine on Hulu. Like, that's really funny. It's <laughs> good Place great, is pretty good it's, right it's now. Great, yeah, Good Place is an excellent show. I mean, this uh, cable news exists in this, like, liminal state between, like, relaxing, just, like, chilling out by, like, not doing your job and, like, actually focusing on the job of the president of the United States, where, like, it's about politics, largely, but it hasn't, it doesn't, like, help Trump govern America constructively. And it that does make me wonder, right? If he was just, like, zoning out and, you know, watching baseball games, it's like, well, fair enough. But, like, what, I, I don't understand what the upside is to watching cable news under basically any circumstances. I think he just wants to see what people are saying about him on TV and tweeting I can't believe what Jon Snow just did would probably not make any sense to his followers. So. I would if Donald Trump live tweeted, he should he should do Game of Thrones binge watch and live tweet it. It would be amazing. Okay. I bet his approval rating would soar. Okay, I think it's time for policy time though on the weeds. Yes. Where we don't watch cable okay, news so and we Sarah, talk about tell policy. Us, why why is everyone dying? Ugh, it's not just every. I mean, today we're going to, we talked about everyone dying on the last Tuesday Weeds. Today we'll talk about the even more depressing topic of children dying. So there was a pretty stunning research paper that came out yesterday in the academic journal Health Affairs that compared the United States against 19 peer wealthy countries. The cohort includes Canada, Sweden, the United Kingdom, France, Germany, And what it finds is that the United States ranks last in childhood mortality, and it is in the worst, not like we have the lowest number. We have the most kids who are not surviving to adulthood. Um, One of the, a few of the stats from this that I just found really shocking is that in the United States, children are 70% more likely not to survive to adulthood than in this group of 20 countries that since 1961 has worked out to 600,000 excess childhood deaths. If these kids had been, the implication of that statistic is that if these kids had been born elsewhere, they would not have died. And that American kids, American teens um, in particular, are 82 times more likely to be victims of gun homicide than in our peer countries, which I obviously expected more gun deaths in the United States, but 82 times is just like a magnitude away. And this research comes out at a moment when um, we the Congress has gone 101 days without authorizing the Children's Health Insurance Program. 
And when I talked to the lead author of the study, um, Ashish Thakar, who's at Johns Hopkins University, one of the things we talked about is just the real lack of security and safety net that exists in the United States. When he thinks about why his findings look like what they do, he thinks about the fact that we're failing to reauthorize a health insurance program for kids. That, you know, one of the other things that shows up in this study is significantly higher rates of um, death from premature birth for infants who are born extremely premature. You kind of work backwards a little bit and you see that a lot of moms in the United States are only getting Medicaid when they become pregnant by virtue of becoming pregnant and qualifying that way, might have a lot of untreated health issues going into pregnancy, are going to might lose coverage shortly after delivering because they're no longer pregnant, that you have this system that is not setting American kids up for success. And it's leading to some really horrific results right now. One of the things that's stuck out to me about this paper is that the data goes through 2010. So if anything, you would probably expect this to have gotten worse in recent years, because one thing we have seen since 2010 is this drug overdose epidemic in the U.S. that other countries have not seen anywhere near to the same uh, to the same severity. So that that, if anything, indicates that these disparities between the U.S. and other wealthy nations are, if anything, getting worse at the time where we're cons- still it's still in the air whether children's health insurance is even going to be extended. Yeah. And also, actually, firearm homicides among younger adults have also gone up in the past couple of years. And I think car crashes, which are the other major cause, has been pretty stable. But to me, it's the drug overdoses that really stick out because I, I know that among young adults un- and older adolescents, which are one of the big groups here, they have seen unintentional poisonings go up to the point that they now surpass firearm homicides because of drug overdose. Yeah, so that's worth emphasizing. This is data that is largely pre-opioid overdose. Yes, yes, this ends Um, in 2010. And so based on everything we know about the international trajectory of uh, opioid deaths and drug overdose deaths, uh, this gap will have widened uh, since 2010, unless there's been some miraculous improvement in maternal health. Well, I'd say, well, (laughs) I don't know if we've, we might have not have, I think we talked about this a little bit last yeah. week on the weeds that maternal health is in arguably more dire straits with with childhood mortality. Our number is going down. It's just going down slower than our peer countries. With maternal mortality, the number of deaths are actually rising. It's not just that we're doing worse than our peer countries. Like we are getting worse while they are getting better. The I'd say the one countervailing force would be the Affordable Care Act and millions of yes. people gaining health coverage. A lot of you know. Folks who, um, particularly with Medicaid expansion, able-bodied single adults who wouldn't have qualified might be qualifying. I I don't think that's a strong enough countervailing force to offset the things you guys are talking about. But that would be the one thing that would push against some of the negative trends that have probably happened over the past eight years. You know, and I would say, I mean, this is a great example of how under Trump, but, but really going back, I think, to when Republicans took Congress in 2011, the American political dialogue has drifted sort of askew to what I would consider an objective assessment of problems in American life. There, like, uh, sometimes I feel like we paint too bleak a portrait of America. Like, this is a country that does really well on a lot of different international indicators. Like, we have the most, biggest, best cars, the most housing. Uh, we have the highest birth rate, you know. But then there are areas that we are lagging on. And we just have not seen any effort at, like, a sustained policy focus on some kind of clear problem area, right? Like, there was no issue 
in like American tech, like America's tax burden was unusually low for an OECD country before the Republicans passed a big tax cut bill. But that was just like, they really, they don't like taxes. Um, But we're not like delving into severe problems in anything that's like proportionate to their severity. To that point, I mean, it's not like we don't have a well-known crisis to deal with right now. We have the opioid epidemic and Still, like that, that has not really moved Congress in the way you would ex- hope or expect them to to be moved. It, it's that that's it's just striking to me how. And I mean, we were talking about executive time, right? But it's like, <laughs> no, no, but but right. this is the thing, right? Like, Fox didn't show this study, right. right? Like a problem with the president getting his information from a channel that sees its mission as doing propaganda for the president is that, like, they don't cover... That, like, this is not Donald Trump's fault. Like, literally, the data no. ends long before he became president. But it's his responsibility, right? Right? To, like, hear bad news about America and then to try to get something going to make it better. Right. So you can, like, envision another world where, you know, executive time is a actual policy briefing where someone says, OK, like, here's an important study, an important news article that came out this week. And then, you know, the one of the things the president can do is really set the tone of, like, what he wants. He has a lot of people at his disposal who could be researching different policy options, who could be deciding what is a priority. And we kind of saw, like, a micro glimpse into this with the opioid commission that seemed very briefly to be a priority, but my understanding has, I mean, it launched in, in the, the sense of like that much of a priority, but seems to have not done much beyond that. But one thing I want to point out, I mean, if you listen to last week's episode, you know a little bit of this already, our low ranking in childhood mortality, it's part of a larger story about life expectancy falling behind in the United States. We saw data recently that life expectancy has declined over the past two years, mostly due to, I've been reporting out a story about this, mostly due to increased overdoses, mostly from opioids, a big role for fentanyl recently, and from a stalling of um, reductions in cardiovascular disease that these two trends happening in tandem are seem to be reversing our gains in life expectancy. You have the maternal death rate going up pretty significantly for the past decade. These are some really troubling trends, but they are one that and they're big, but they are also ones you address through policy. So they they are they are big and they are not getting dealt with in any serious way in in governing right now. Yeah, the the opioid commission to to what you said. I mean, it came out, made its recommendations, and since then we've pretty much heard nothing about what whether those recommendations are going to be implemented supposedly kellyanne conway's on it but i don't know how credible that is and one thing i found interesting about your write-up of this is kind of how it the one of the things about universal systems is they create this base of support that these children have all of their lives whereas fract our fractured health insurance system it really creates this chaos that makes it difficult for for example somebody who who wants to get health care, they might have just changed insurers, so they're not sure which doctor they can go to, which specialist they can use. And I imagine that must have some sort of effect on how how people are able to access health care. And it's just another way that like a universal system probably could could at least help in in reducing these kinds of these horrible statistics. 
All right. Um, if you're out there listening, uh, use your executive time well. Uh, recommend The Weeds uh, to, to your friends. Uh, join join The Weeds Facebook group. Uh, dive deeper into these issues. Uh, you know, spread the word. Uh, maybe get some get some people in the White House to take take a little policy time to listen. Uh, find some big problems out there. Till then, uh, thanks to Herman for joining us. Thanks to our producer Peter Leonard, and we will be back on Friday.